it is great to be with you today, and we are diving back into 1 Thessalonians. It's a, a book of the Bible that we are studying together. We're in week two. We're going to take our time just kind of going through this letter that God preserved for us so that we could be reminded both what kind of um, community he is pleased with and what kind of leaders create those communities and what communities need to remember and understand so that we can be what God intends us to be. So let me pray for us and we are going to dive in together. We're, we're glad you're with us. Father, thank you for the grace of being together wherever we come from, whatever's been going on. Today, you want us to interact with you and you have told us that your word has power both to save those that are lost and to comfort those that um, are in the midst of trouble and to afflict those that are way too comfortable. And so would you do your work today? Would you um, comfort friends? Would you remind them of things that are true? Show them the goodness of who you are? And would you spur us on and uh, conform us into the image um, that you intend for us to be, that our lives might be filled with meaning and purpose and peace? and joy and strength, that we might be um, a source of blessing and strength to others in your name. We can do nothing apart from you, but we thank you that with you, it doesn't matter where we've been or who we've been, what we can be is forgiven and a glory to you and a source of good to others. So go to work this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me remind you um, just a little bit about what we talked about last week. This is a community that Paul's writing to. Paul, as you know, was um, uh, a servant of Christ and was a apostle once sent forth from God. And so you might not want to use the term apostle for yourself, but you too, if you know God, have been sent forth, or a better way to say it, you've been left here for a reason. You have been blessed to be a blessing. There are folks that are here today and that you will bump into throughout the rest of the day that God wants you to be a source of grace and blessing too. And so for that to happen, we're going to remind ourselves about what kind of leadership is a blessing to people that they bump into. Let me remind you about what this little community of people in this town called Thessalonica were like. And um, I'll do that just by um, redirecting you um, back to chapter one. And there were people that were genuinely converted. They were at peace with God, not because of anything they had done. And I just want to say to those of you that are guests or friends that are listening, there's nothing that you can ever do that would make you pleasing to God. The, the people in Thessalonica were living in a world a lot like the world that we're living in. There was um, an infatuation with the flesh, an infatuation with business and comfort. And the gospel, the good news of what God had been up to and what God was doing was something that they had no concept of and no concern with. And God brought to them somebody that understood the love and the kindness of God, that didn't want to tell people, straighten up and get your life together because one day you're going to get inspected, but no, that God had come to you understanding the brokenness of the world that you're living in to remind you um, of who he was, a God that was so holy that you could never be close to him or friends with him, but that was so good he would deal with that separation and bring you back into the grace and the peace and the goodness of living with and knowing him. And so this was a church that we find out was in God and in Christ and therefore had received grace 
and peace. The scripture says, therefore, having been justified, that means declared once and for all finally by a sovereign judge as innocent and not guilty, having been justified by faith. God does something amazing when you just believe that he is good enough to deliver you from the judgment that your sin and mine produces in our life. It says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So this was a, this was a group of people that heard that news. And as a result of that, they went to work. They go, if it is true that Christ is God, and if it is true that he died for me, then no sacrifice is too great. Uh, Paul wrote this later to a church in Rome. He said this, uh, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, won't he also with him freely give us all things? In other words, don't you want to know more of this God? And so this was a group that had been given grace and peace. And they had a work of faith. They didn't just um, take the idea from God that they were forgiven, no matter what they did, and then just keep doing what they wanted to do. No, that kindness of God produced in them a transformed life. So a work of faith, a labor of love, they went to work. They exerted great effort to love others in Jesus' name. And they had a steadfast hope. It wasn't easy. So I want you to think about this. A church had received grace, had received peace, and they went to work. Not to earn their salvation, all right? Um, but because they were saved, they no longer tried to um, come up with truth and no longer tried to find life on their own. But they go, God, you who has given me grace and forgiveness, give me more. Show me how to live. And they were busy and they were about it. And so this is what they were doing. Now watch this. They had that um, work of faith, labor of love, that steadfastness of hope, and there was more. We see that this is a group of people that um, had a receptivity to the good news of who God was and what he was doing and what he was about. They changed their mind that God wasn't good. They changed their mind that um, his word wasn't something they needed to listen to. They changed their mind that disobeying him wasn't that big a deal. And they became humble disciples. They became imitators of those who knew this information before them. And they had enduring joy in the midst of a world that wasn't perfect. So if your world's not perfect, look at these people because you can be like them. And they had exemplary behavior that everybody throughout all the region had heard about how they had radically changed. They were then a strong witness, a city on a hill, which is exactly what God wants to do in you. That people want to begin to look at your life, look at our community and go, there's something different about those people. These humble Christ followers that have enduring joy, that have an amazing um, exemplary lives that therefore are, are to be followed and noticed that were hospitable and receptive to spiritual leadership. This is what was true about them. We see in, in, in chapter one, verse nine, their lives turn from idols and to a living God. Let me just say this. So many times people think that the church is all of a sudden a group of people who don't do certain things. And that's the lousiest way in the world to describe Christians. We don't just flee immorality, but we pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with others who have called on God from a pure heart. We know who he is. And the last thing it is, you'll find out that these were people who fixed their hearts, verse 10 of chapter one, on eternity and were ready for the return of Christ. So why do I review all that? Because that's a pretty spectacular description of humans. People that had um, 
been forgiven and they had peace. They were ready for a holy God to return. That had been examples to the world that were humble, faithful, hardworking, and enduring in hope. Now here's what I wanna do today. We're gonna just take a look at the next 12 verses in this book and I'm gonna tell you today what kind of leader produces that kind of people. And the reason we're gonna look at that is because you should bet your leaders to ask yourself, are these folks that um, I am receptive to, are they like this? And then to ultimately ask yourself, how am I doing in aspiring to be these things? And what do I need to do um, to sharpen myself that I might be myself useful to the master prepared for every good work? Because we don't want you to come to Watermark. I don't want you to go to my church, which isn't mine. I am a servant of Christ and a steward of the mystery of God. I'm not giving you Todd's gospel and Todd's ideas. When I, I um, wrote that blog post we just told you guys about, the, um, about the, how to respond to the coronavirus, I didn't tell you what I thought. I looked at what God's word said and said, this is how. There is direction for us how to respond to the chaos that's increasing in the world. And this is nothing compared to past incidences where there's been chaos. Now, who knows where it will go, but we already have the playbook on how to respond. And God wants you to not just sit and take notes and attend some service. He wants you to tend to God's business. We're a kingdom of priests. I say it all the time. This is a pastor's conference that we do here. And we have lots of guests that are here that don't yet know this God. And so we're trying to say, hey, we're serious about being the kind of people that we see God using so that God can be made known to you. We wanna be useful to our master, prepared for every good work. It's why we study the Bible. It's why I'm about to read now, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, and then study it with you. Because this book is God-breathed. It has power. And God has intended for you to know these things so that you can be taught, reproved, corrected, trained so that you would be adequate, and I'll say it again, equipped for every good work. So let's take a look at 1 Thess 2, 1 through 12. You ready? I'm gonna read it to you. Got your Bible? I hope you open them. Chapter two, verse one. You're gonna see a theme through these 12 verses. It shows up um, just in this little section right here six times, all right? And uh, it's a key to understanding what kind of leader you want to be. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is a witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having such a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you'd become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, 
how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, there's a couple things that um, I just want to share with you. Let me just remind you who the church is supposed to be. I kind of did that in setting this whole thing up. I want to let you know that the church, the people of God, that God wants to see more people experience the, the grace and the peace that he created for us through the gospel, through the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He wants nothing from us except just to come to our senses and to be aware of his nature and his character. I've said it before, I want to say it again. God is a, he's absolutely obsessed with his glory. And you're like, gosh, Todd, that doesn't sound very attractive. Why is God obsessed with his glory? God is obsessed with his glory because he knows that when it is manifest, when it's made known, that it will be so attractive that people will be drawn to it. And when people are drawn to it, they will receive the thing that they're looking for. Let me say, God is not obsessed with establishing his glory. He's not running for president. He's not trying to get elected king. He's not hoping you'll think well of him. He is good. God is better than you can imagine, kinder than you could hope, and Every good thing dwells in him. No good thing does he withhold from those who love him. And listen, there is a liar out there and all he does is attack God. And all he does is try and make you think less of God than is true of God so that he can then seduce you to go another way. And every time I sin, every time I go my own way, it's because I'm buying that lie. I believe that God is not enough and that the way that he calls me to is not where life ultimately is. And I'll say this to you again. I'm going to keep repeating it. There's only one sin that offends God. Pornography, adultery, lust, materialism, self-infatuation are not sins that primarily will keep us from God. They are the symptoms of one sin. There's only one primary sin that, that we are all responsible for dealing with and forsaking. Now, all those other little sins flow out of that primary one. The primary sin is this. The primary sin is we don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because we think that he's not who he is. We buy a lie, and it's the truth that will set us free. And the truth is, in his presence is fullness of joy, and in his right hand are pleasures forever. Now, on this earth, that doesn't mean that um, there's going to be nothing but ease and nothing but pleasure because this earth is not what God intended earth to be. This is not Eden. This is the creation that we have wrought. When we said to God, we don't want your will. We don't want your way. We're not going to follow what you say is good. We'll decide what is good and we'll decide what is evil. That's how you get earth. And the scripture says all of creation is longing for redemption. And what God has done is he's plucked some of us out of this fundamental sin 
that Adam and Eve and all their descendants made until they come to their senses, which is, I want to kind of manage my relationship with God. I don't really want to call him. Uh, well, I'll call him whatever he wants, but I'm not going to act like he's really Lord and Savior. And by the way, this is why there's so many people who, who will say, man, Todd, I just want to know, how, where's the abundant life? I, I, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I go, well, listen, believing something intellectually isn't going to change your life. People say what they think, but they do what they believe. You want to see your life change? Start to walk with Jesus, worthy of the calling of Jesus, and you will see transformation. Don't just say there is a God that exists in the scriptures and in history that is better than the idols that you've been worshiping. You've got to turn from idols and turn to God. And so many folks are not experiencing the life that God wants from them because they have this intellectual idea about God, but they never walk worthy of the God they call God. Can I say that to you again? It's not just come up front while we sing another verse of a hymn. It's not get baptized. It's not take communion. It's not go to church. It's follow me. Now, why would you follow him if you didn't believe he was good? And I'm gonna let you know that the reason so many people don't follow God is because they've never met a true Christian. I don't know if you've watched uh, recently Justin Bieber, who has uh, sat down um, with a gentleman on um, an Apple podcast that's there. If you just go to iTunes, you'll see, I think it's still kind of plastered there first, where Justin Bieber is sitting there and he's talking to a guy about his desire to really walk with Jesus. Man, I, I pray for Justin. I pray it's true. Our you know, word is Kanye's kind of drifting the same direction. Man, go for it, Kanye. Praise God. But what Justin is saying is, hey, man, I, I never really knew I was around. He grew up in a Christian home that was a product of a failed marriage where two people, probably in a church, got married and said they would love each other as Christ loved the church and then didn't and left Justin alone with a mom. And he was around probably still churchy stuff but he wasn't around Christ followers and it cost him. And he's just sharing a little bit of the story. I mean, I think he goes, I'm, I'm, I'm finally around some different people that are showing me what, what this Jesus is really about. And, and I wanna share with you, that's why chapter two, verses one through 12 is so important. There are Justin Bieber's all over this world and they wanna run into Paul. They wanna run into Sylvanus. They wanna run into a Timothy who's learning to imitate Paul and Sylvanus. They wanna run into you, Christian. I mean, a real you. And so watch this. This is so important. Look, look what Paul says. He goes, look, man, I'm not hiding. I, I am who I am and I'm, not, uh, I'm afraid to show you who I am, all right? And so he's just gonna lay it out right here and he's just gonna say in verse two, uh, verse one of chapter two, you yourselves know, look down at verse five, as you know, look at verse nine, you recall, look at verse 10, you are witnesses, look at verse 11, as you know. So what's going on here? You want to know what kind of leader produces the kind of church that I talked about in verse one or chapter one? It's the kind of leader that, that isn't a hypocrite, isn't somebody that has um, a veil um, of, uh, uh, of appearance of godliness. But if you really get to know him, it's just not what it looks like. 
You know, so much of what is wrong with ministry today is, especially in larger churches like this, the guys that lead them have no relationship with the people that they're leading. They, they, um, they have security details. They uh, make a big deal about themselves. They're not really available to people. And, uh, and, and too many times when people get close to them, if, you know, if they even can, they find out, man, this guy is not who uh, he's telling us we should be. And Paul's saying, that's just not my story. That's just not my way. It's why I, I mean, who really cares? I'm going to talk about this in a little bit, but that's why I never, I just stand um, here on, on weekends when I'm done teaching until no one wants to talk to me. Sometimes for two and a half, three hours after I'm done, I'll just stand here. Anybody wants to hang out with me. Now I don't fill up my week with folks. Okay. I'd love to grab a cup of coffee because that's all I'll do. And I'll be useless for everything else. But I'm like, look, I, I, I'll hang with you any way I want. I love it when I'm out and people go, hey, man, Todd, you know, we, we hang out at the same place. We're part of the same community, the same city in the hill. It wants to have exemplary behavior and the work of faith and labor of love. I love that. I love to sit and visit and talk. I mean, I'm amazed how when I meet people here and I always want to meet them just downstairs out here in the coffee shop, especially guys who come in from out of town because they've heard about you and us and what we're about. And they go, bro, what are you doing, man? You just walk down here and you just like sit down here. And I go, what are you even talking about? They go, do you have security? I go, what is wrong with you? I go, you know, can I tell you why a lot of pastors have security? It's because it's the same reason, um, that I used to just do this with my friends when I was in high school. Maybe you guys have done this, right? Um, we, would, we would just be bored, and so we're trying to have some good, clean fun. So um, we would just like go to a mall or a very public place. We would have one of our friends um, dress up in a way that kind of reflected the best it could, like somebody that was a big deal. And then um, we would start to go, oh my gosh, you know, loud, like in a food court or something. Oh my gosh, is that? And next thing you know, we'd just move a bunch of us around him and just you know, take pictures and make a big deal. And they would just go, hey, hey, hey. And we'd try and create a ruckus like there was like some celebrity that was right there. And the next thing you know, there's a bunch of folks that were trying, oh my gosh. And that person would come around, he'd take a few pictures. Other people would walk around and kind of try and see who was there. And the next thing you know, we'd have a couple of guys who were bigger that would come in and kind of be dressed up. And they'd go, hey, he's got to go, he's got to go. And he'd just kind of rush him out and we'd just move. And our goal was always to get mall security to kind of see something was going on and kind of protect, you know, the guy as well as he made his way out. That was our goal. That's how we knew we won. Okay? It's not hard. I mean, honestly, if you just stand up, like right now, I'll tell you what, if everybody here stood up and started looking over there, what would the rest of you guys do? You go, what's over there? What's over there? And, and it could be just them jacking with you, right? I, I got to tell you, I think a lot of guys, they're just jacking with you. They're acting like they're a big deal so they can feel like they're a big deal. And you're going to find out Paul was nothing like he was accessible and he was available. He didn't think meeting with him was that big a deal. In fact, I'll just, you know, sometimes people go, Todd, would you baptize me? And I'm going like, nah. And you go, oh, you too big a deal for that? I go, no, you just don't need me to baptize you. Paul said exactly that when the Corinthians were making a big deal about being of Paul and being of Apollos. And Paul goes, I'm not a big deal. This is God's gospel, not mine. Right? And so I don't think I baptized any of you. Oh, yeah, I baptized him and him. But I think that's all I baptized. I'm glad I didn't baptize more of you, which also tells you something about this perverse 
theological idea, which is called baptismal regeneration, which means you're not saved until you're baptized. Why would Paul, who's concerned about the gospel, say he's glad he didn't baptize a bunch of people if baptism was the way that you could be saved? But Paul was not just into it being about him. He was into it being about Jesus. And by the way, if you believe in Jesus, you ought to be baptized. But look, I'm not going to make a big deal about me. And in return, guess what? You shouldn't make a big deal about me. It's why when people say, well, are you going to meet with me? Are you going to hang out with us? Or, 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 and I'm like, well, I, if, I, if I get to, if I have the privilege, if I'm the right expression of God's grace to you, I will. But guess what? We're a body. We're a kingdom of priests. And there are gifted folks all throughout this body. And you don't probably need me. That's why I'm kind of out there stirring up my own work and meeting with people who don't even know I'm a pastor at Watermark, but I just become the source of God's grace to them. You know who doesn't get well? It's the people who think they need to meet with me because I'm the pastor of Watermark. Like, I'm going to do something special for them. I'm not going to do anything special for you that any devoted, faithful, humble, spirit-filled, Bible-infused, devoted follower of Christ can't do for you. It's the effective prayers of a righteous man that avail us much. And I'm so glad you think that there's a righteousness in me, but righteous biblically is not mine. It's his righteousness. And there is a body and an army of faithful people here. And I understand I have a relationship with you because of the role that I play. And that's why I want to talk to some of you. And I'm so grateful for the, 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 the connection that you have with me because of the role you give me the privilege to play. But this is Christ's church, and it's Christ's work. And I'm just a member of the body, and I'm so grateful for the role I play in it. But don't, don't make me a bigger deal. And by the way, if I make myself a bigger deal, then this isn't Jesus' church. Or it might be his church. I just shouldn't be his leader. Let me just say one more thing about this Justin Bieber idea. Because some of you guys go, well, gosh, Todd, I don't really think that right now I'm the kind of person you described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you know, where I'm an exemplary individual with a strong witness. I'm not a city on a hill. I'm not really, um, you know, completely receptive to leadership yet. I, my life isn't transformed in all the ways that I want to be. In fact, there are some people that are here that are um, critical of Watermark because they go, oh, Todd, you say it's a pastor's conference every week, and oh, uh, you know, I, I want you to know, man, I, I see people here sometimes and I, I mean, I'm like, man, that doesn't look very mature. And can I just say this to you? I, I want to read you an email I, I, I pulled um, from way back when. And we get emails like this a lot, okay? Because there are new converts all around Watermark. And there are people who are taking the name of Jesus and aren't very transformed yet. And so I'm saying this to those of you that are here that have taken the name of Jesus and you're not ready to be a leader like I'm going to teach you today and am teaching you today, you need to be. I'm going to say, don't be discouraged. Just continue on. Stick with us. Have a hospitality that is receptive to leaders that we believe are above reproach and that want Christ for you. And so here's an email I got from somebody and said, hey, uh, why don't you address the severe punctuality crisis on your hands? <laughs> I noticed that about 20 to 30% of your congregation arrives about an hour into the worship service. That is outrageous. When and if you choose to fix this, please let me know, and I might consider giving Watermark another try. All right, so let me tell you how I responded. <laughs> and... Um, you know, I've also heard that like even in the warmer summer months, sometimes like, man, hey, tell your people to dress differently. 
And you know what? Um, we do what we can when somebody um, needs some help and, and with their attire. We, we have ways just to help them in, in little specific moments. But, but everybody that walks in here and parks in that parking lot and is awkward with you during the meet and greet is not an elder and a leader in this church. There's a lot of reasons that people aren't here on time. Some of them are just flat wrong. But a lot of times we, we don't assume that right away. There's a lot of immaturity at Watermark. Do you know that? There's a lot of unchurched people that are just showing up. There's a lot of people that were in church a long time ago, like Justin Bieber, and are making their way back, and they're kind of de-churched. There's a lot of dead church people here, folks that are just showing up, that have been in other churches, thought they were Christian, are going to find out they're not. And there's a lot of people who are here that are just unmoved, that are trying to figure out if this message, this gospel of God that Paul brought to Thessalonica and we're bringing here to all our campuses is true. And can I say this to you? One of the marks of a healthy church is there's immature people there. One guy wrote this. This is, this is how I responded with a little bit of preface. I said, the mature church is the church that has immature people around it. Anywhere in the world, whether plant or animal, the clear delineation of maturity is the ability to reproduce. Immature animals can't reproduce. Immature plants can't replicate themselves. The definition of maturity is being fully ripe, fully aged. So the condition of maturity is obvious. Whether you see maturity, um, where you see maturity, you'll observe new life, babies, and immaturity all over the place. Right? We're meeting people who, like in Thessalonica, were committed to dead legalism and we're inviting them to the gospel. We're, committed, we're meeting people in Dallas, just like in Thessalonica, that were given to paganism and sexual immorality, and we're inviting them to consider the gospel. We're meeting people that are atheists and inviting them to consider the gospel. We're meeting people that have been um, abused and tortured and oppressed and are hurt and inviting them to the gospel. See, maturity desires reproduction. Maturity tolerates juvenile behavior from juveniles while training its progeny for the success in life. Maturity means there are little babies, new life, running all over the place. If you attend a mature church, a godly church, be prepared for immaturity. Where you find mature Christians, you'll find little babes in Christ running all over the place. You'll find people that are not even conceived in faith yet. In fact, if you've been looking for a church where everyone ties and everyone serves, you're not looking for a mature church, you're looking for a dying church aged, impotent, bereft of spiritual newborns because everybody's mature and there's something wrong with them that they're not reproducing. So I'm going to say this. If you're here and you take the name of Christ and you're indifferent to the things of Christ and you're rude and you're not growing and you're always late everywhere because it's about you, then that's a problem. But if you run into people at Watermark that seem immature, Love them. As a mother tenderly cares for her babe, admonish them in grace. The way a father, the scripture says, exhorts his children. Go to work, church. Now watch this. You're going to see a little. Um, you're going to see a little thing that Paul does. And if you want to really understand a simple way to outline chapter two, verses one through twelve, um, verses one through seven are kind of like. This is how a leader doesn't act. And verses 7 through 12, this is how a godly leader does act. So let's take a look at it. You ready? 
Watch this. Paul's saying, you know, man, you know me. And, and it's almost like there's a little bit of a, um, some people might call it a polemic, which is just a defense. And he's just basically saying, I want you to hear um, me defend a little bit of myself because there's some people apparently that came back around and said, you shouldn't listen to Paul. That's crazy. Paul's not who he said he was. And you believed in, in something that was crazy. That's why he says in verse one, that our coming to you is not in vain. That word vain means it's not without effect. You guys know that Jesus changed you. You know, I'm not some charlatan. One guy who, um, who studied what's called the ancient near Middle East, which is just the time that a lot of your New Testament, that Christ was alive and the New Testament was written. This is the way he described what was going on. He says, um, there was probably never a time in history that such a variety of cults and philosophical systems existed as in Paul's day. Now listen to me, because I think today we're giving him a run for our money. East and West, remember Thessalonica is at this important crossroads uh, from Rome all the way over to the far East in the Silk Road. East and West have united and intermingled to produce an amalgam of real piety, high moral principles, crude superstition, and gross license. Oriental mysteries, Greek philosophy, local godlings competed for favor under the tolerant aegis of Roman indifference. Holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots, and cranks. The sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints jostled and clamored for the attention of the credulous and the skeptical. In other words, Paul showing up in Thessalonica with, um, with a story was not unique. Y'all get that? It's just not, there's always somebody telling people, hey, this is it, Kabbalah, Madonna. She's showing up and telling you, this is it, man. All right, there's Imams. Uh, there are swamis. There are false teachers. There are new age experts. There are skeptics. There is Richard Dawkins. And there's just this gross tournament of narratives that is out there. Uh, um, let me just tell you, Paul is just saying, first of all, you know I'm not a swindler. And, and, I, and this is why you hear me, guys. You know that I am not um, very patient with specifically individuals who represent Jesus in this position and are exploiting the flock and doing the things that leaders shouldn't do according to 1 Thess 2, 1 through 7 and are not doing the things that leaders should do according to 8 through 12. Let me just um, show you. This is just a fresh one. This could have happened in California, but it happened to happen in Tennessee and in Georgia. This guy right here, he's slapping a Bible up on someone's head. This is a guy named Jerry Pierce uh, of a Georgia-based ministry uh, called His Name is Flowing Oil. And Jerry, lo and behold, God bless him, um, he's got a ministry centered around a Bible that miraculously has produced oil. And it's produced a ton of it. And um, what he does is he goes around with this Bible that produces oil and he prays for people. Um, he has been to North Carolina, Maryland, California, Pennsylvania, Michigan. He's got events scheduled all over the United States. But all of a sudden, they were just canceled. Now, uh, uh, Jerry and his buddy, Johnny Taylor, um, just said, we don't know how or why, but all of a sudden, this miracle Bible started flowing with oil. He said, it started in Psalm 39, 
and then a flow to the back of the Bible where it formed a stain over the Middle East in the map section of your Bible in the shape of a heart. And um, he said, man, I, I, I don't know, but the Lord told me, Jerry said, to place the Bible on them and anoint them with it. And he said, it's amazing. When I hold that Bible up on people, it drips with oil. Now, Jerry stored his Bible in a vat of oil that the Bible leaked. And so it was drenched with oil. So if you pull a Bible out of the oil, as Jerry did, and you put it on people and hold it up, don't you think oil's going to drip out on people? Well, it did. And listen, folks were swooning around him, but they ran into a problem because when the news started to report this bludgeoning, growing ministry, his name is Flowing Oil, a couple of managers at the tractor supply there in town noticed that, that, that Jerry was the same guy that had been buying an inordinate amount of um, their oil. And so they went and called the news. that this guy that you got all over TV that's doing all these healing miracles. And there was a lot of people that claimed they were healed by this Bible and by Jerry. Um, he said, I've never been to Tractor Supply. Those guys are lying, was his exact words. And so they went back and they looked at different footage. They went back to him again. And he goes, okay, well, I did. I bought it. And they went and tested. They sent the oil to the University of uh, Tennessee, Chattanooga, and they did a test. And lo and behold, um, scientists found that it was identical to the mineral oil sold at Tractor Supply, a petroleum-based oil. And then all of a sudden he said, well, my Bible quit producing oil. And also the 87 pieces of silver that they said also came from it. But meanwhile, apparently a guy hadn't heard about that. Jerry had visited a church in Cleveland, Tennessee, which is not far from Chattanooga where he was. Um, and so just right after that, uh, and by the way, this started with oil being and appearing on the walls. You heard any other churches claiming that? Glory clouds? Gold dust? Oil was on the wall first, then it came to the Bible. Well, just about that time, there was a church up in Cleveland that found a guitar that all of a sudden had oil on it. And it was producing little chunks of gold. Gang, it's everywhere. And it's deceitful. What's so interesting and so tragic about Jerry is that he and his buddy, you know, one of the things they say in the interview is just go, hey, listen, man, we don't have anything to prove to God. We're just stewards of what God's doing. We'll leave the consequences and the rewards to him. Yes, you will. And so will you. You may not be claiming that God has your Bible producing oil, and let's all agree that if God wants a Bible to produce oil or glory clouds to come or gold flakes to fall, he could easily do it. But what God says he wants to produce is fruit in you. And what God says he wants to do is not have you be immature for years and decades after you've taken the name of Christ. Because as Jerry has said, you're a steward and you're gonna leave the consequences of your life to stand before him when he gives reward. This is nothing to trifle with. Look at 2.1. He says, you know, we, we came, it was not in vain. What Paul's gonna do is you're gonna see one, two, three, um, four times here in this first little section, this idea where he says, it was not in vain, but, he comes right after that, but watch this. After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we didn't care that we were beaten and bruised and striped and hated and lost popularity. We had the boldness in our God to speak to you in the gospel of God amidst much opposition. In other words, Paul said, man, a little resistance doesn't deter me. 
And you shouldn't be surprised by it either. You shouldn't go, man, this is kind of hurting my relationships. You should just go, well, if there was a way that I did it that I shouldn't have done it, I want to get better at doing it. I want my speech to be seasoned with salt, as it were. If I was offensive just because I was offensive, man, I want to repent of that. The words of the wise make knowledge acceptable. But if your words were as wise as they could be and as gentle as they could be, just don't be backing down with critics. Listen, if you don't know about our Church Leaders podcast that we produce for leaders in the church around the world, and you are leaders in the church around the world, I beg you, download our Church Leaders podcast and listen to the one about how to handle critics. And if you don't have time how to do that, read verses one and two of First Thess chapter two. When you're criticized, if you, if you see that the reason you're being criticized is true, change. But if it's not true, then don't even stoop to consider it. Can I just tell you something? I know, and I'll say this in the podcast, I know I'm not Jesus. That means sometimes the way I did it is suspect. Sometimes the way I do it isn't exactly what Jesus would have done. And so I stay humble. But I also know that when Jesus did it, he was still criticized. So I stay steadfast and bold. And if someone criticizes me, if there's something true, I change, I seek forgiveness, I make amends. But if someone criticizes me and the problem they have is with the truth and not with me, then I just keep preaching the gospel. It looks like what Paul did. Look at verse three. I did not, here's the thing, leaders don't, okay? They don't just have empty ministries. They don't produce something. Anybody with the gospel is gonna produce something. Verse three, they don't exhort with error or impurity or by deceit. They don't dip their Bible in um, oil. They bought a tractor supply and say they got the power of God. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Hey, wouldn't you love that? Go, gosh, Todd, I wish God would entrust me with the gospel. Gosh, guys, I think he has. When Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, he said, for we, like all believers, we are ambassadors for Christ. It's as though Jesus himself were, were, were pleading through us and begging through us on behalf of Christ, that they would be reconciled to God. I don't know what's worse. What Jerry and Johnny were doing in Tennessee that was deceitful or a church that knows what they said they knew and doesn't do anything. Because God will use the truth that those guys in their swindling and philandering false, selflessly motivated fleecing the flock ministry, but if you drop a little Bible in there and gospel in there and God's going to use it, he won't use your indifference and neglect. I, I, I love the quote that D.L. Moody said one time that somebody walked up to him and said, Mr. Moody, I don't much like the way you share your faith and the way you do evangelism. And he turned and he said, hey, I don't much like the way I do it either. Tell me how you do it. And he go, well, I don't do it. And he goes, well, then I like my way of doing it more than your way of not doing it. <laughs> And so I just want to tell you that, that it is error and impurity and deceitful to say you love God and to never exhort people with the gospel. So Paul says, you know, God examines heart. We don't do this to please men. I'm not looking for you to affirm me. 
right there. You see it? It comes again. Here's another one where he says, we don't speak to please men. No, but we know God examines hearts. And so guys, you know, God knows what my motive is. This is the thing with young pastors. I just tell them, man, what, I don't know why you're, you're promoting yourself that way. I don't know why you want everybody to notice you that way. Because men might notice you. But God knows if you're just using the gospel and your gifts to get noticed. Why don't you just do what he asks you to do? And if he wants the world to notice it, he'll put you on a hill. Just live for God. Not for men to tell you you're a great pastor. Just be a great pastor. Stop it. God examines heart, and Paul says, that's what I want. I just want to be found faithful. Look at verse 5. Here it comes again. We never came with flattering speech. I'm not, I'm not trying to just to butter you up. As you know, I'm not here because of greed. This isn't my money-making shtick. God is witness. No. I, I didn't seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though we could have exhorted our authority because of who we uniquely were, having seen the risen Lord, but I didn't make that the thing. I just know the Lord is risen. You know, when I go tell people and I go talk somewhere, I don't, I don't lead. Uh, you know, when I was down in El Salvador, when I'm in Africa, when I come as this American megachurch pastor, I don't go down there and tell them, my authority is about 25,000 people a week come to Watermark. My authority is blah, 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 blah. I start every time the way Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. I just say, hey, listen, guys, I'm not here with superiority of speech or of wisdom. I'm, not, I'm here just to proclaim to you the testimony of God. This is my authority. It's not, it's not that, um, that, that I, I'm impressive. I, I want to determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In, in a sense, I want to be with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching are not going to be in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration, I am praying of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of an American megachurch pastor, but on God. So don't listen to me because I, I have a large church. Listen to me because I have a true gospel. And you test it to see if it's true. And so I'm going to open the word, and this is my authority, not my TV show. I don't have a TV show, but um, <laughs> the guy that was there just before me does. And they're all impressed because he does. And I'm saying, that's not, that's not, that's not why you should be impressed. Verse seven, he says, no, we didn't seek glory from men, but no, we proved to be gentle. I mean, one of the things that we get when, when we send you out other places, folks say all the time, and you guys, you were so humble. You were here with us. You laughed. You, you dined with us. You ate with us. You didn't just show up and then do your big thing and take an offering and go back to your hotel rooms. Sounds like Paul. That's, that's what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't be those things. I could have put them in a pithy way for you. I just, I'm just walking you through it. Look at verse eight. This is how a leader does act. Watch this. He said, we had a fond affection for you. We longed to see you. We weren't just doing our gig and getting out of there. Do you guys, do you love people, right? Remember that labor of love. Do you love people? Are you longing to be with those that you're longing to bring the gospel to? Like, like a, a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond affection for you. We long to be with you, is the idea. 
We were pleased not just to give you the gospel, but our lives. Can I just say this to you? When you're sharing the faith, are you always just sharing your faith with nameless, faceless people? Or are there non-believers that, that, um, that you care about? That you love? That are on your speed dial? That have your cell number? That want to just be with you because you love them? And you tell them you love them. That's what changed my life. What changed my life is there were some Christians who I thought were punking me. I go, what, what do you guys want? Manuel Todd, nothing. We, we just, we see in you, you know, and there was a lot of hurt that was in me and they just loved me. And I was sure they were set me up to hurt me and exploit me like the last group did. And they just loved me. And I finally said, man, what are you all doing? And they basically said, come and see. It was some guys around Young Life. And they just said, come and see. Come and see what? Well, come to this thing called club. Well, what do you mean? Why? You guys are seniors. You shouldn't start in quarterback in the football team. I'm just a skinny old freshman. I'm a skinny sophomore. What do, you, what do you want to do with me? Come and see, Todd. You want it? No. Just We want you to know what we know. Hey, listen. Are you curious? You asked us why we love you? Here's why. We've been challenged by a guy that's been, made a big difference in our life. Just to love people the way God's loved us. I go, what? What? They go, no, I know that sounds crazy. But we're learning that God pursues us. And we're also learning that God wants us to pursue others in his name. That's why, man. That's what we're after. So if you see something in us that's attractive, that's Jesus. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And it changed my life because I saw a true love and a steadfastness. You recall... Our labor and hardship. That word labor there is that same word, labor of love. It's focused, diligent effort. How we poured ourselves out working day and night so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. I mean, we labored to give you birth, Paul said, and we're laboring to raise you up. Right? Moms know what I'm talking about here. Delivering a child through the gospel and evangelism isn't easy. And guess what? It's not easy sanctifying people in your community group, bathing them birthing them into adulthood. That's work. And they're saying, we're like a mom, man. We're not a, we're not a grandparent. Everybody says to me, oh, isn't it great being a grandparent? And they tell me all these jokes, you know. Hey, grandparenting's the reward you get for not strangling your teenager. And everybody's got all these different jokes. Grandparents say, oh, I love kids. The best thing about my grandkids, the best thing about them is they leave with their parents. Right? Paul said, no, no. I, I, I'm not kidding. I'm young enough still. I resent my kids when they take my grandkids. I'm like, look, you guys are putting up for adoption. I'll take them. I want to start over. Let's go. Can they be mine? I'll raise them. And my wife looks at me and goes, no. No, she's the... <laughs> she reminds me, you know, um, she did that six times, you know. And, uh, and I, I remember, she goes, remember those days when I would be gone just for three days and you were all alone? I did that 362 days. So we're grandparents, right? And really what she's just saying, but Paul's just you know, saying that, and, and my, my wife is constantly with the grandkids. But I just want to say this to you. Paul's like, hey, we're not, we're not grandparents, man. I'm like a mom. I hear you crying when you're not crying. I love you. And then he also says this. You're our witnesses, and so is God. 
how we, we gave you a model to follow in verse 11. We exhorted and we encouraged and implored you as a father of his own children. See, but Paul's saying this is how you do it, man. You love people. You long for them. You're not just trying to make it and do it when it's easy. You're committed. You labor diligently in hardship, working night and day, tenderly like a mom, exhorting like a dad. But I, I could have taught an entire message just on the need for biological male and female relationships. Dads need to be tender. Moms need to be strong. But there's something about a mama and there's something about a dad. Quit acting like it's not there. And quit acting like because you're one, you don't have to be the other. <sighs> Why? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. See, that's what we want for you. That's what I want for you. It's the only thing I want for you. I want you to walk worthy of the calling. Because why? Because when Jesus comes, you're going to stand before him and give an account. Not just Johnny and Jerry. You are going to give an account. This is, this is Jesus' last words in the Bible. Behold! Like, it's not like, hey, it's not like I'm walking out with a good meal and go, behold. No, he's like, hey, it's, it's an indicative. It's like, listen to me. This is Jesus talking. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me. And I will recompense everyone according to their deeds. Deceitful, recompense. Deadbeat, recompense. Went to church, recompense. Was the church? Was a godly leader to produce the church? Recompense. And I pray for you that when you stand before Jesus, because you're a part of this body, that you're going to, in that moment of judgment, and I think this will happen, that you'll just kind of catch my eye if I'm around, and you'll just go, Todd, thank you. Thank you. And you'll, you'll catch the eye of your community group and others in this body and just go, yes, I'm going to hear me. I'm going to tell you, thank you. I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because of you, because of your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope, which spurs me on and makes me want to be more faithful. Thank you. I don't want you to come here. I want you to be his. Father, help us. Help us to not want praise of men. Help us to not speak with flattery or have a pretext for greed. Help us not be individuals who in error and purity or by way of deceit corrupt the mission. But no, Lord, make us people of affection for those that you died for and shed your blood for. Make us labor with hardship day and night to not be a burden to people because we're in the way of them seeing you. But no, let us, Lord, be witnesses to them, devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly behaving by our abiding with you, exhorting and encouraging and imploring others so that they can know you and so that they can walk worthy of a manner that when they stand before you, you'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you, Father, that we're saved by grace through faith, but thank you, if Father, that, that having been saved, you've left us here in this dark, perverted, broken, chaotic world for a reason, and that is to be your hands and feet to others. So let us be, let us be that. Make us your church, make us your leaders. Let's go, Jesus. We love you, we're yours. Let us learn your ways. Let us imitate Paul as he imitates you. 
for your glory and others' good, we pray. Amen.